Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. As a church, we're busy preaching through the gospel of John, John's gospel, and uh, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11 this morning. We're in chapter 11, which is part 26. Which means it's been 26 weeks that we've been journeying together through the Gospel of John. I want to begin slightly differently this morning with a story, a true story, and in many ways a sad story. A sad story happened in December of 2019 at a church in America, a church called Bethel. Uh, In December of 2019, the church's worship leader... Uh, the family of one of the worship leaders lost their two-year-old daughter. Uh, she just stopped breathing one night, and they uh, rushed nine one one. Rushed there, um, tried to resuscitate her, and sadly, she was declared dead. The two-year-old girl, and it was a tragic moment. And obviously, you can imagine how the family was processing. However, what we didn't imagine would happen was what followed. And what followed was that the family decided not to bury the child or to have a funeral because they were going to resurrect the child. And so they called upon the church, they called upon the friends to hold 24-7 prayer and praise nights. And what followed were six grueling days where each day the family would wake up and say, day one, what a day for a resurrection. Day two, they would post on social media. Day three, day four, day five, day six. It ended after day six, and the child was not raised. One of the quotes from the mom was this through this process. We are asking for bold Unified prayers. You can go to the next slide. Thanks. We are asking for bold... Is it not there, the quote? Okay, sorry. Listen carefully. My, my bad. We are asking for bold, unified prayers from the global church to stand with us in faith that he will raise this little girl to life. Her time here is not done. This is a tragic story for at least two reasons, many reasons, but at least two. One is the obvious pain and sadness. I don't wish this upon anyone. And I can't even imagine what this family were going through. But part of the pain and part of the disillusionment is the false teaching that they were fed. The depth of the pain, I think, was compounded by this misunderstanding that if we just have enough faith, If we just sing enough, if we just pray enough, then we can resurrect our daughter. Somehow knowing that her time here is not yet done. The the tragedy is complex. And uh, eventually they surrendered to the reality of the situation and had a funeral. Um. But what is it that leads people to this kind of position? It, it doesn't just happen. Uh, it, it's, it's on the back of misunderstanding. Now, you might be thinking, where am I going with this? Well, today's story is about a resurrection. 
It's actually the famous story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, where we encounter someone dying. And Jesus arrives four days late, and he raises him from the dead. Now, is this a prescription for the church? Is this a prescription of what we should do? Now, we know as we've been going through John's gospel that Jesus has been performing miracles, right? And what are we to do when we read about the miracles? Are we to conclude, if Jesus can do it, we can do it? Is that the conclusion? No, no, we've already answered that question, that these signs are to declare to us who Jesus is. These are evidences of his glory, of his divinity, that Jesus is God. This is not prescriptive. When Jesus turns water into wine and you're at your next function... You are not to solve the problem of the lack of wine by creating more wine. We, we don't read the text like that. We, we don't read the story of the multiplication of the loaves as if we too should do that. And we go throughout the Gospels and we encounter Christ performing miracles and walking on water. And our conclusion is not, we can do this. Our conclusion is, who is this? which is exactly what the text tells us as they gazed upon Christ who said to the storm, peace, be still. The disciples say, who is this that calms the wind and the waves? That's how we respond, church. Now, it doesn't mean that God can't do the miraculous. Of course, he can do the miraculous. He's God. God is sovereign and he can do all things. But this is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. It is describing Christ and his glory. So the, the, the sad thing is that death is an enemy. Death is tragic. Some of us have lost people close to us. Some people die suddenly. Some people die slowly. Some people die when they're old. Some people die when they're young. Some people die rich. Some people die poor. Some people die of natural causes. And some people die of accidents. The bottom line is we're all going to die. And our life is in the hands of God. But this begs the question then, because if death is so pervasive and death is all around us, the question then is, will, will death ever be defeated? And the good news this morning is, yes, death will be defeated, and there is hope beyond the grave. So we're going to read the passage in four different parts. We're going to read it under these four headings. Jesus delays, Jesus promises, Jesus weeps, and Jesus calls. So the first one is Jesus delays. We're going to read the first 16 verses. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. This is a really interesting literary moment because John is telling us about what's about to happen after the story. Mary hasn't done this yet, but he's including it here. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved all three of them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, ill 
He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are wanting to go there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to the fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Remember, they thought that we're going to stone Jesus, and wherever he goes, there's going to be trouble. In this passage, we see initially it seems like Jesus is denying that Lazarus is dead, but actually he qualifies that later. He makes it abundantly clear that his Language is metaphorical. He is asleep because he's dead. We talk like that. It's the way humans speak. However, the way he speaks like that, the reason why he uses a metaphor is because he wants us to see that death hasn't got the final say in this situation. And so he speaks of it in a temporary way because he knows the outcome. He knows what he's about to do. Have a look again at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. And we could go, oh, but he died. Is Jesus lying? No, no. It doesn't lead to ultimate death. Why? Because it's for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's what Jesus has been doing all along. Then look again closer at verses 5 and 6. These are quite shocking verses. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This seems like the most heartless thing to do. It, 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 it's possibly unloving if the text didn't say that he actually did love them. You could come to the wrong conclusion that Jesus didn't really love them. But the text tells us, no, he loved them, which is why he delayed. Have you ever been in that position where, where Jesus delays or, or Jesus just doesn't seem to come through for you and you kind of start to doubt his love for you? Could it, could it be that, that they're thinking, well, Jesus, if you really love us, why are you delaying? You should be running to Bethany. You should be running to Lazarus, praying for him so that he does not die. Do you not care about us? Do you not care how we feel? Do you not care about Lazarus? Do you not care about Mary and Martha? But what we see is that Jesus loves us in ways that we cannot even sometimes understand. And part of his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus was that he doesn't show up immediately. Do you have categories for that, church? Have you got room for that in your mind, in your relationship with God? 
Because what Jesus wants them to experience, the reason he loves them so much is he wants them to experience a miracle that would change them forever. And in order to do that, they need to first walk through some pain. They first need to experience some suffering, some, some pain and sadness. And so God often allows us to experience pain and suffering for our good. Church, again, I'll ask you the question, have you got room for that in your theology? Because it's abundantly clear in all of Scripture that God is always at work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if they were going to see the glory of Christ, which is the ultimate goal here, they were going to see the glory of Christ, they would only see it on the other end of suffering. This is often how God works. Because sometimes we don't see when things are going well. Or all we see is the reflection of ourselves in the mirror. And there's something like hardship and trials that help us to strip away our own self-centeredness so that on the other end of it, we see the glory of Christ. Kind of reminds me a little bit about Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember the story of him being despised by his brothers, and then they sell him into slavery. And then I'm sure Joseph thought, okay, God, you're going to deliver me now because you remember you gave me those promises, you gave me those dreams, and God doesn't deliver, he delays. And then Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house as a slave. And I guess he's thinking, okay, here it is, God's going to deliver me here. And no, God delays. And then he goes, he's, he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and he ends up in prison. Remember that? And I guess he's praying, they go, Okay, God, now's the time, and God delays. And eventually, he's promoted to the prince of Egypt, to the prime minister of Egypt, for the glory of God and for the saving of his own people and the whole nation. God has ways of working that we don't always fully understand. There's some nice fridge mag magnets you can get that says, God's delay is not always his denial. Ah, it's cute. But, um, and there is some truth in it. But, you know, sometimes God delays because he's saying no. And he is denying you something for your good. And sometimes it's just a delay because there's something else that he's doing. And actually what he's doing is in you, not for you. That's the first point, Jesus delays. Secondly, then Jesus promises. We read on after verse 16, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Well, like most Jews of the day, Martha believed that God would have a day. The, the last day, the judgment day would come. And on that judgment day, all the saints would be raised to new life. What she didn't expect is that it would happen now. And so Jesus takes this moment of her good theology and he brings it close. Because this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is displaying the future realities of the kingdom of God. When, 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 the, when the whole world is made new and the kingdom of God invades the world, Jesus' life on earth at this particular point was an outbreak of that future kingdom. And he's about to display it. But before he displays it, we have another I am saying. Do you see it? The fifth one. We've been going through them all. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. We're going to hear a few more. But here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he's not just claiming to one day give life to those who are dead. No, no. He's actually claiming to be the author of life. He's claiming much more here. He's claiming to be God. I am the resurrection. Not just I will do some resurrections, but I am the resurrection and I am the life. I am the author and creator of life. I am the one who was there at the beginning. Remember the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. I am the author of life. And, 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 and although you're experiencing death and sadness and brokenness, the author of life is in your midst. Can you imagine what can be when he's there? And he does begin to make all things new. And so let's read on, because Jesus makes this promise, I am the resurrection and the life, and he's in their midst. There's anticipation, but we read on from verse 28, which ends on verse 35, which is the most famous verse of Jesus wept. Here we go. When she had said this, so she confesses belief, Jesus asks her, do you believe this? And she says, yes, I do believe you are the son of God. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Exactly what Martha said. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. 
Why is he crying? It's a very important question. Why did he weep? Well, firstly, in verse 33, we have this interesting phrase. It says that Jesus was deeply moved and greatly troubled. And the force of these words and the intentionality of them in the Greek actually suggests that he is infuriated. And so there's a real mix of emotions, as we can imagine. Jesus is actually, in this, this point, he's actually angry, but his anger is not directed at God. You know, sometimes when people go through suffering, they get angry. And guess who they get angry with? God, as if he did something wrong. Actually, this is a model here for how we can be angry and not sin. Jesus is angry at sin. Jesus is angry at death because death is not your friend. Death is not the order of life from the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and declared it all to be good and there was no sin and there was no death. And so Jesus is grieving not only the loss of his friend, but the effect of sin. And so he is moved, he is outraged by the situation. And in a sense, he displays anger towards death because of his hatred for sin. Now, someone might say to you, oh, I'm not a sinner. I've heard that, you know, in our culture, you know, we don't like to talk about sin. We talk about weakness or just like disordered desires as if we're trying to domesticate them. The ultimate proof of sin is death. No one escapes it because no one is not a sinner. We're all sinners. And Jesus is angry here because of death, which is a result of sin, and he knows he's about to decisively deal with it in the next few days. He himself is going to bear our sins. And so in some ways, he's already now beginning to grapple with what he's about to do in his own death. And he's going to die, not for his sin, because he was pure and spotless. He's going to die for our sin. And so he's going to taste this death, this very death that's confronting him. He's going to taste it. And I think John puts all of these details into this text about how many days he was dead, because we know about how many days Jesus was dead. And he puts details in about a stone that will be removed from the tomb before he comes out, and then how he comes out and he's, filled, he's still walking in his mummy gear, right? He's got linen cloth on, and, and, and all of these parallels between Lazarus and Jesus, and all of this is in Christ's mind here. Because he knows he's about to raise Lazarus, but it's a picture of his own death and resurrection. And so when Jesus is weeping, there are, there are a whole lot of things going on. He's a human being, and he experiences human emotion. And he identifies with the humanity of the situation. He identifies with the pain of Martha and Mary. He identifies with their loss. So there's the human nature. Then there's this powerful picture of, of a God who weeps. And I think it was Spurgeon who said, I will struggle to worship a God who promises to take away our tears but never wept. 
He will remove our tears, wipe away our tears because he himself wept. And so this is a picture also of, of, of the God that we worship. It's not some kind of stoic religious God. You know, some kind of pious God who's unmoved by our realities, who's unmoved by our pains and our struggles. No, no, the God of the Bible is moved deeply. And I think Paul would write this because of this picture, that we weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And in this moment, Jesus is weeping with those who weep. And then we move to our final point. Jesus calls. Verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. So they know there is a move of a, there's this movement in Christ. There's this emotion. And they identify it as love. See how he loved them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Brilliant question. Absolutely brilliant. Think it through, right? We don't have time. Then, verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. There it is again, hey? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. Notice the parallels here. And a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time he will be Stinking, right? There will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a profound moment. And with a loud voice, he screams, come out, Lazarus. And you can just imagine Lazarus' heart beginning to beat again as he lay there all mummified. And then his blood begins to race through his body and his brain waves begin to ignite and his limp bones begin to come back together and form and muscle tissue. And he begins to move and the crowd on the outside of the tomb are staring into the darkness of the grave. And eventually this mummy begins to walk forth from the grave and they're all terrified, right? Absolutely shaking in their boots, sandals. Charles Spurgeon, he says this. This is so cool. He says, Jesus had to specify that he was calling Lazarus. Otherwise, every dead body in Palestine would have burst forth from the grave. He doesn't just say, come forth. People everywhere. No, Lazarus. Just, just you, buddy. This is your moment. 
Let me ask a question. Could, could Lazarus at that point gone, no thanks? I'm enjoying the eternal glories. Could he have resisted? Can you resist the call of God? Of course not. So I close with a few things that I think are happening here. Firstly, this is a prophetic picture of Jesus' power to both lay down his life and take it up again. Not only is it happening to Lazarus, John is pointing out all of these parallels because it's a picture of Christ's own death and his own resurrection. And in John chapter 10, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down and then I take it up again. The power of Christ. Secondly, not only is it about Christ's death and resurrection, it is about our resurrection. That, that, that although we will one day die, we will be raised with a glorified body. That, that what Jesus does for Lazarus, in a sense, he's going to do for us. But here's the better news. Lazarus got his old body back. How blind. And, and here's the interesting thing is Lazarus is going to still die again. But his hope is even more, not less. Because church, when he dies, he dies, and then he will rise again in the resurrection, not with the old body. Isn't that great news? Especially if you've got lower back problems or you, you know, maybe you're struggling with a few things. This is amazing news. That you're not going to get Lazarus's body. You're not going to get even your body. You're going to get a new body, a glorified body. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But the third thing that's happening here is not only is it about Christ's death and resurrection and one day our resurrection, but actually it's a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of our salvation that we were like dead men and women. This is the picture of our humanity that we were dead in our sins. And when the shepherd comes and calls he raises us to new life. And the sheep hear his voice, remember, and they follow. Lazarus heard the voice of the shepherd, and he rose and he followed. Edward Clink, a great commentator, he says, that, he says this. He says, at that moment, Jesus saw not only what Mary and the Jews saw, physical death, but what God saw. Spiritual death and the effects of sin, the tomb of Lazarus, was not the only place of death. The whole world was a tomb in waiting. Because of spiritual death, because of sin, and because of sin we will die physically, but there's a death that happens before we die physically, and that is a spiritual death. We are born sinners, and we need the voice of God to come calling to us. And if you're a Christian here today, this is how you got saved. Jesus stood at the tomb of your life, however old you were, and he called your name. And he said, come forth. Come and follow me. And I end with this in Ephesians 2. This is how Paul describes it. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. 
There's a parallel here. Because of the great love with which he loved us, rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Hear me, you were not just sick. You didn't just have a little problem. You were not just in need of hospitalization. You were not on life support. You know, it's not like you're a good person with a few problems. No, no. You were dead spiritually in your trespasses. And you needed a resurrection. Even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Rich in mercy. Why does he do it? He's rich in mercy. Should we ask God for healing? Absolutely. We can ask. We cannot demand. Should we pray for the sick? Yes. If they die, there is hope for a future resurrection. Should we trust God? Absolutely. Should we pray big prayers? Absolutely. But it requires faith to rest in the wisdom of God. Because if he can heal them, he could prevent them from getting sick in the first place. He is sovereign. But let's not miss the the point of this. This point is not, hey, go and do the same. The point of this is see who Christ is and what he's done for you already in raising you to new life, if you believe. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We really do pray that we would have a deeper sense of your glory, of all that you've done for us in Christ, of the power of our salvation, that it required a resurrection, that we were not just a little bit ill, but we were dead in our sins. That's a picture of us. We were in the tomb of our sin. And Jesus, you came to us and you called us by name. And you said, come forth. And we followed you. You are the good shepherd and we heard your voice. Lord, we pray that we would have a deeper sense of appreciation this morning. But also that you would fill our hearts with faith for great exploits. But at the end of the day, we say, your will be done, Lord, not ours. This is for your glory, not ours. This is for your kingdom, not ours. And so we pray the prayer of John, Jesus, you must increase, we must decrease. And so we pray that through this message, there would be an increased sense of your presence, an increased sense of your glory, an increased sense of your majesty. May we be a people of real faith that trust you and know you. You are the resurrection and you are the life. And we thank you that there is hope in life and in death. Blessed be your name. Amen.